Hello, welcome back to the Keys Coach podcast. My name's Adam, and this is the podcast where I sit down with piano, keys, and synth players and talk about their life in music. Today's guest is Liam Dunnerkey. Now, Liam is one of the most versatile musicians I've ever met. He's at home playing jazz, classical, pop music. He's an amazing Hammond player. And in this conversation, we talk about how he got started in music, how he developed love for jazz. We discuss what it's like being a dep on several West End shows. And we also dive deep on all things Hammond organ. Liam's got so many insights into how people can get started on the Hammond and some little tips and tricks for anyone looking to improve their playing. I've known Liam for a number of years now. We've worked together a lot and it was great to sit down with him and chat about all of the amazing things he's up to. Before we dive into the conversation, if you're looking to level up your keys playing and are interested in hearing more about the keys coach as we continue to grow, I've put a link to sign up to our waitlist in the episode description. This will mean you'll be the first to know as soon as new content is released. We have got lots of exciting plans for the future. Okay, let's get to it. Here is the conversation I had with the awesome Liam Dunnerkey. Well, thanks so much, Liam, for coming on. Uh, great welcome. to see you. you I've, you've just been saying you've been uh, very busy recently doing lots of different things. That's right. Yeah, that, that's my usual usual ways. Um, spreading myself very thinly around a, a lot of different uh, situations and uh, just stay out of trouble. Yeah, no, it sounds good. I mean, I, I was, I've been like, I, I, we had a brief chat before the, we started recording and I was saying I was just going through your website and stuff and all the different things you've done. And obviously, because I've worked with you loads before, I, I was thinking to myself, God, I don't think I actually know many piano players that are as versatile as the sorts of things you've done. Because if I if I read through all these different things, you've done like West End work, you've done like lots of work in obviously as like as, as a jazz artist on your own, under your own name and with various other people. You've done loads of work with like choirs and on the more classical side as well. And um, I just, I thought it'd be great just to chat through a lot of these different things and kind of... Uh, see how it all started really and how you how you kind of got there got to the position you're at now um right so i guess that i mean the first question would be like how did it all start kind of in the first place i've done this a little bit with a few interviews we've gone back to the beginning but i thought it'd be really interesting to do that with you no sure that makes sense uh, well i um i was lucky that my dad uh was well still is um uh, um a musician he's a, a great piano player and violinist in fact um, so I saw, I suppose when I started playing the piano, when I was five or six, he was my teacher and, and he was my teacher right through until I, uh, till I left school really until I was uh, 18 and, and, um, and, and he was, a uh, he's not, he wouldn't describe himself as a jazz musician as such, although he's very versatile himself and he's got, uh, he's really into improvising in a, Sort of wider sense and he's played a lot of folk music he's also a music therapist which is quite improv um heavy and uh but he's also he also just a very good classical um pianist and composer so i suppose he was my sort of um uh he was the guy who kind of got me going up from from the, from a young age and it was it's obviously quite handy having a piano player on tap at home uh and it's an awful lot cheaper um <laughs> So he taught you then that was that was kind of how it worked he taught me yeah that was that's that's right and and i learned violin as well uh from a young age but i think i always got uh, and i got reasonably proficient at the violin and and i only really stopped playing it when i left school but but i always took to the piano more just out of laziness because it's it doesn't require any setting up <laughs> i think that's kind of what it came down to you don't have to tune the thing you'd have to you know put rosin on your bow get the music down to the right height find the 
um, find the music and then put your shoulder rest on and then your tuning's already gone out by that point. Um, so I think I was just put off by the, the just the bits of faff that you have to go through with a with a, a violin, whereas the piano attracted me more because you could just sit down and just start making some sort of music. And then there's the fact that what you hear is is effectively the whole piece. You're not reliant on an accompanist to kind of fill in the gaps like you are if, if you play a, a single instrument like the violin. And I sort of liked that being able to just kind of create a whole sound world uh, on my own. And um, and improvising was always uh, always something I was really fond of doing, just messing around and writing writing little tunes. And my dad really encouraged it. I think there's quite a lot of uh, quite, uh, there's quite a lot of classical piano teachers, certainly traditionally, who who maybe slightly frown on improvising if it's if you're not actually spending the time shedding the piece you're supposed to be learning for your grades or your concert, or whatever. Then that they would consider that time not well spent but but my dad was always very keen that i do kind of experiment and make things up and uh, just kind of have fun on the instrument um which i sort of continue to do um so that that was that was kind of how i got going with the with the piano and then another sort of major element of my sort of musical training was in choirs you mentioned choirs a few minutes ago and uh, i was a chorister in hereford cathedral uh, from the age of nine, I think, till till me, my voice broke at fourteen, and that was an amazing training um, there. You know, I mean, any cathedral choir uh, in this country, we're very lucky to have some uh, a lot of them, and 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 they're often a, a make a very high standard of music. Uh, and there's an incredible discipline from doing that day in day out when you're a young lad and and uh, playing, singing, making music with with professionals essentially because the the lay clerks, the, the people who sing the, the other parts of, of professional singers, and you have to turn out this this music to a really high standard every day. Um, so singing was also yeah, a really big part of my so yeah musical training, if you like, and um, and I, cont- I carried that on at university where I was a choral scholar as well, doing a sim- similar thing in an, an amazing choir. Um, and it's yeah, so occasionally it feels strange not to be singing at all these days. We, I've hung up my voice quite a long time ago now but um but it certainly was a big part of my um of getting me going and 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 inspiring me to to want to do music all the time yeah absolutely that's so interesting what you say about your dad um in like kind of motivating you to do improvising and that kind of thing because i think that's actually that can in some circles be quite rare um to sort of be to mm. be encouraged as a thing, which is, which, but do you think that's kind of how you've ended up doing the sort of music that you do now? The fact that you were always improvising from that young age and you had that so early on, or do you think you might have? I mean, it's hard to know, I suppose, isn't it? Whether you would have found it later. Yeah, on. It is, I think it's. I think that's got a big part to do with it. And I, I remember just really enjoying um, being able or learn, well, the process of figuring out how to provoke an emotion or create an atmosphere or create a, a feeling right. with, um, with, with a bit of music. It was, I've, yeah, I've always in, enjoyed that challenge of trying to, yeah, evoke some sort of atmosphere or a feeling in whoever's listening, if anyone's listening at all, um, which isn't always the case in a jazz club. <laughs> and, and yeah, and, and and I guess some people would do that through composing. And I did do a lot of composing as well, particularly when I was younger. But there's something about improvising where you don't, you're not waiting for someone else to come and perform it in a few months' time or years' time. You're doing it, right? You're composing and performing it 
mm. there in the moment. And that's, yeah, I think it was probably from tinkering around um, on the piano from a young age that, that, that kind of got me into that. Amazing. I mean, I know we have quite a few like piano teachers um, who listen to this um, and they have like maybe beginner students that they're teaching or that kind of thing. Um, what sort of advice would you give them of what they could get their students to do to just start getting into that improvising world without having to always play what's written on the page? Gosh, well, it's a good question because and, and I don't know if I'm well placed to answer it because I don't actually teach at all myself and I've often shied away from teaching. It's partly why I do so many other things is is to make sure I could pay the bills without doing any teaching. <laughs> um, so, but when I think about what what my dad did when I was um, young, is he used to play with me quite a lot. He he came up with this this term, the sandwich tune. We called that when I was I'm talking about when I was very young, you know, seven or eight, and I'd be sitting on the piano in the middle, sort of playing the middle couple of octaves, right, and he'd be sort of hovering above. And whatever I'd be playing in the middle of the piano, he would play something kind of complimentary or, or um, he'd be playing at the extremes of the piano. Yeah. And so we were sort of creating something together and he'd respond to what I was doing in the middle and maybe harmonize what I was doing to make it sound good, you know, with a with what he was doing in the bass or, um, and we sort of bounce ideas lifting. off each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that's it. And, or just, just kind of having that sort of conversation. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, because to just start improvising with that with a totally blank slate and no one to bounce off it's hard yeah could be quite hard i suppose yeah but he having someone to sort of have a dialogue with like that was was quite yeah and we had we had good fun doing that do you remember the first time you played with another musician that wasn't your dad obviously on piano was there was there a point when you were like oh wow this is this is so cool making music with other people ooh uh do you, in a, do you mean in a, in a kind of jazz situation as opposed to my kind of choral stuff? Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe more on the piano, yeah. Play, playing on the piano. Um, the very first time I remember playing in anything you could call a band um, was uh, in a, and I'm not saying this is that that um, sort of light bulb moment, but it was uh, playing in a, a local pub in Ludlow where, where I grew up and my godfather ran a... Um, he he got kind of put on various jazz gigs in the area at the time. And every New Year's Day in the morning, he put on what he called the, the Hangover Blues session. And there were some local jazz musicians, which included uh, an, who, somebody I now know was the legendary drummer Tony Levin, uh, who's sadly no longer with us, but he was quite an inspirational uh, big figure in kind of in the free jazz world. But um, he, yeah, he was he was a big deal in in british jazz drumming and he happened to he, he was living in the area at the time and uh he was on the drums and my dad wrote uh, a little blues for me called the lazy cowboy blues and obviously i didn't i didn't you know i couldn't improvise the blues this was when i was about seven years old or something and he he sort of wrote out this little blues for me to play so i played that with tony on the drums and uh and a double bass player um and had a, i remember having a great time playing it um, but that was probably the very first time I played with a with a rhythm section of any sort. Um, in terms of other playing, I, I guess I did a lot of I did a lot of chamber music as well when I was you know because I didn't really start playing jazz seriously until I was in my late teens. But playing uh, playing piano trios and accompanying um, instrumentalists and singers was always uh, a, a huge part of what I liked to do um, when I was when I was learning the piano. So. And, and trying to be an empathetic accompanist has always been, still is a 
a, a big thing for me. One of the things I'm really interested in is like, because uh, it's so interesting talking to you because out of a lot of the people I've spoken to, they've always, a lot of them have said that their reading of music is nowhere near as good as their being able to play by ear or improvise or that skills. Whereas it seems to me that you very much can like straddle both worlds. Like I, I've worked with you loads before and there's basically nothing I can put in front of you that <laughs> is, 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 is a problem. And uh, that is, is like the complete opposite of how, how, how I am on piano. My ears far outweigh my ability to read. I can read and I can get through it, but it causes me quite a lot of stress. And <laughs> I, I like to get it in advance as much as possible. But um, I just would love to right, ask you right. about that because do you kind of partition it in your brain, or does does it feel the does it feel the same to you whether you're reading something or you're improvising something? Is that what's what's going on that's different, and how do you kind of differentiate that? Uh, oh, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I'm not sure that I I don't know that I necessarily partition them. Um, but actually, I, I sometimes wish that I'd come from the the other way around. In fact, there's a part of me that wishes now that I'm kind of mostly known as a jazz player that I, I, I actually funny, I kind of feel like parts of my game are, are a little bit underdeveloped because I've, because I was always a strong reader aspects of my listening and, and particularly musical memory, I feel have kind of suffered a little bit and aren't as developed as, as some of my kind of contemporaries who've, who've just been coming through doing music by ear. And because I was able to kind of blag my way through a lot of situations because I could because I could sight read pretty effectively, and and it, even when it comes to learning learning standards or learning jazz tunes, it, it's something I find a little bit harder than I feel like I should do because because it things I don't just naturally retain things in my head. To, even now I think about it when I was doing doing the kind of ear test component at, at the end of your associated board exams when I was doing the harder grades. That, that I don't know if you still have to do it, where you have to sort of sing back or play back a phrase that the the examiner plays you, and obviously as the as you go up through the grades, the, the phrases get longer, and that was the one thing I kind of really struggled with. I could I could kind of pick out a note and a chord, and you know say say that's the third or that's the the flat and sixth or whatever, but I really struggled to sing back phrase or just retain stuff like that. Um, so actually, yeah, it's a kind of a mixed. Um, it's kind of a mixed blessing. I think my, my, my kind of ear skills, not so much ear skills, but um, kind of musical memory and being able to pick things up by it have probably like improved through my twenties. And I guess now I'm into my thirties, but it, it wasn't something that came supernaturally, I don't think. Um, and I tried now, you're talking about partitioning the two things. I think, I think they kind of slot together and, a lot of the time when I'm when when I'm sight reading something or trying to sight read something, and as I'm sure we all do, you fill in a lot of the blanks because the more music you know, the more likely it is that you can kind of guess what what that chord probably is. Yeah, you think this is probably you know if you know the style and you know the where where it's coming from, you can kind of have a bit of a guess. Well, this is probably that chord. And nine times out of ten, you might be right, you know. And unless you find, oh no, actually that's a that's a double flat. I didn't see that coming. Um, and then things like rhythmic reading, which I guess you you need more in for reading charts, you know, more commercial things. The kind of things you put in front of me, will there be hits, you know, and things on offbeats and syncopated syncopated rhythmic um, features to pick up on. 
again, I think I've got much better at that since I've been focused on jazz because you're going to get to know the rhythmic vocabulary of of that kind of music and, and you can hear it. it's that kind of or whatever. You can kind little... of second guess it a little bit, can't you, as well? And yeah. There's chord symbols as well, happy days. <laughs> exactly, yeah. So the more information you've got to play with, the better. But yeah, it's, it's a, I try not to let my... My my reading go down the pan because I'm aware that it, it could if I if I never did yeah. it. So I'd... Oh man, it's such a useful skill to have. You know, I think yeah. it's incredible. I wish I wish my reading was better. It's something I'm constantly working on. Because when I do sit down and I read something, it's like I'm it's like I'm playing a completely different instrument. It like goes to a completely different part of my brain. Um, right. It's like I'm playing with my eyes rather than my ears, and I'm not used to that. <laughs> it's like I probably just need to do more of it. I think, but. Um, but I don't really have the opportunities to do that so much. Do you practice kind of playing classical music or playing chord sheets or lead sheets or what kind of thing do you do? I don't play a huge amount of classical music. In fact, I very I very rarely kind of do that. So I think I think most of the kind of world I'm mostly working in is the is like a lead sheet or a chord chart or even just learning something by ear, you know. So um, I, I'm sure if I did more of it, I'd get better. But I'm always very jealous those people can just sit down and play anything. And of course, that's that's meant that you can go and do a, a quite a wide range of um different work because you've done quite a lot in like the west and um, we're jumping about a lot i know but um we're, we're sort of pick it up in a second but you've done quite a lot of west end work as well which requires that real kind of being able to sit down and just step on a show and read the whole pad through well yeah although that's i do i do yeah these days i, I am doing quite a lot of work in the west end um and although it's a it's a bit of a misapprehension that it's that it relies on being a good reader quite often if i say i i work on some shows yeah, the, the first response is, oh, you must be a great reader then, um, which which it kind of ironically isn't really the case because when you, uh, I, I dep on a few shows, I dep on four, currently I dep on four different shows in in, in London and it's, um, you really have to know the music inside out long before you go anywhere near that pit and it's, um, you've got you've really got to know it kind of just about as well as the regular player so, I mean, for example, the show that I'm I've been doing a bit recently, and which I'm doing tonight, which Guys and Dolls at the Bridge Theatre, which is an amazing show, and uh, there's some fantastic music in it. It's because I'm by no means a huge fan of musical theatre in, in general. It's not. Uh, it's kind of a. Uh, I, I do enjoy the work, but it's it's a means to an, an end, as opposed to something that I'm passionate and really love doing. Um, but but Guys and Dolls of all the shows I've worked on is, is, is a really great piece. And there's just great music in it and several tunes that we play as jazzers come from that show. But when I go in there and play the, I go in there and play the, the keys one part um, when I'm depping there and particularly in the, all the rubato stuff. Yeah. Stuff that's out you, of time. Yeah. You've got, I find that I've basically memorized sort of chunks of it so that I can just stare at the conductor and make sure that I'm playing in time with the rest of the ensemble and just trying to land every chord with his downbeat as accurately as possible. Whereas if you were going in there and genuinely kind of sight reading it or kind of looking at it bar by bar, I think you'd be, you'd be, you'd come unstuck very quickly because you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to play with the ensemble. So how have you, how have you got to the stage where you can you can do that do they send you can you maybe talk us through like one of the shows you've done and how you actually sort of made <laughs> learnt the pad do, they, do yeah. they send you like a whole recording of the show or something like that uh, yeah they do, absolutely yeah it's quite it's a quite a sort of tried and tested um routine that it, right. 
typically if you if somebody asks you to to be one of to, to join their debt list if you like um on a show then they'll have a these days a dropbox link and i'm sure there's older musicians who sort of uh post to this and so if they <laughs> dropbox you know yeah exactly you get a jiffy bag in the post with a cassette but um these days you'll get a Dropbox link and you'll have a video of the MD. The, the, the MD will be uh, filmed in, in the pit. Everybody is typically watching a, the MD on a, on a monitor screen. So you'll get a, a recording of that, usually from quite early in the, in the run, shortly after they've had the press night, after which the, everything is set, you know, so the tempos are fixed and everything is kind of nailed down and it's, just becomes a case of doing the same thing every night and so you'll have an uh, you'll have a video of the md and, and a recording um of the band playing hopefully it'll be the the regular 18 band uh and you'll usually have the click track uh, a lot of tunes depends on the show um and on something like lame is you you'd have little or no click but on a more kind of pop or rock groovy type show there'll be a lot of stuff with a click and that's presumably so the the songs are always at the right tempo for the dancers and that kind of thing. Is that, yeah, is that kind yeah. of yeah? It, that that it's that it, yeah. Obviously, the dancers need it to be the same speed every night because they you know they've learned their choreography to to fit that specific tempo. But also, a lot of shows these days will have um, they'll involve a lot of time codes. So there'll be sort of effects and lighting and special effects which are kind of synced up to land with a certain downbeat. So it's it's a lot. I don't really understand it all, but it's all quite kind of techy and and clever, and everything synch- synchronized with everything else. So, what could possibly go wrong? Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, well, I think they do go wrong. You know, occasionally the, the computer crashes and everything grinds to a halt. Um, so that's the process. You just sit down with the video, you sit at the keyboard for or your piano for a long time, and um, and you just kind of play it, play it until you it's in the muscle memory. So you you're not you kind of know what's coming and it's the, the score is more of a kind of aid memoir. So as a, as a DEP, you have to hold four full-length West End shows in your head, essentially, then, if you're doing four like you are. Yeah, that, yes, that's right. And it, it, it um, I mean, p- people do do plenty more than four. I was talking to the bass player on Guys and Dolls last night. He said he, he's got eight shows on the go at the minute. Um, and that's kind of, the, the shows are his kind of 100% of what he does. And he's obviously very good at, depping on a, on a lot of different things um but yeah you try and hold try and hold them all in your head and it's it's not easy another sort of difficulty being that the, the patches that you encounter because your, your typical show guys and dolls is an exception actually but most keyboard parts in a show uh mean you've got you're running main stage on a laptop and it's all been programmed by someone else from from day one and you'll be triggering all sorts of different things or maybe playing a, an accordion in your left hand and a pizzicato strings in your right hand and then two bars later you've got to quickly change patch and on the next beat you're playing a you know you're triggering a string uh string run in the left hand and then you've got a, an ocarina in your right hand and all this kind of thing and that's terribly confusing <laughs> yeah it kind of can be and i've come unstuck once or twice when i've I've got it into my head, right? It's the low C, the low C trigger coming up. Need to hit that. Got to make sure I get that. And it's similar to another show, and it's that there's a C an octave above that, and then you hit the wrong one. And think, oh, see. Yeah. So all the triggers are mapped to keys on the keyboard, right? Yeah. Switch sounds. Okay. Wow. Okay. No, no, not to switch sounds, but there'll be, for example, uh, 
like there might be a, a, a um a heart bliss that's been oh i see that's been mapped okay yeah it's yeah, been yeah. mapped sorry yeah i'm not i'm not a great piece programmer so yeah so and you sort of you know press that one note and you hear a okay i see that that's mad because you must obviously i presume <laughs> i presume all those setups in the different shows the setups are different in each show so you have to remember which ones were, oh man wow it's, a, it's such a it's such a, a different different world that do you tend to find that um each each show has like a similar type of do they have like the same keyboard in each each show um, or does it tend to vary are they like nords what are they the, uh you don't tend to come across too many nords I, well they're actually funny of guys and dolls where the keys one part is just a piano part which is quite refreshing there's yeah. no patches or anything it's just i don't change anything from start to finish and just playing it an acoustic piano sound which is great um you tend to find a quite you you find quite a lot of the same keyboards uh kurtzweil's were always a really popular yeah uh, pit choice um for a long time um and i think before maybe before main stage was quite so ubiquitous a lot of keys programmers did it in-house on the kurtzweil um so like I, think, I guess that's type thing yeah yeah exactly but these days it's just the keyboard is just essentially a, a midi controller right and so it, yeah you could get you could find yourself with any any sort of full size 88 key weighted keyboard and some will have two um two keyboards as well there's a when I, I do back to the future as well and there's quite a bit of hammond stuff on that one so there's a second keyboard above the the main one which is which is semi-weighted with borderful keys um to make glissing easier and that, so that's just a dedicated hammond um thing on there so that 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 you come across that too wow god man it's very very um very complex and it's uh it's, i take my hat off to anyone that does that type of work i think one of the things because people have often said to me that i should um i should maybe get a bit into that sort of md kind of world doing doing the whole show thing because i do a lot of work with singers and the whole warm-up thing and you know yeah, all of that it. i mean i've i've thought about it i think i think i find it i don't have i don't necessarily think i have the conducting chops necessarily um it's because i think that's one of the things i've found playing with i mean maybe you find this quite easy with your work you've done in the classical kind of world following a conductor but some people when they conduct are really strong on the downbeat when like in you know where's the one and it's really Mm -hmm. clear and it's kind of like metronomic conducting where you can really see the beat and other times depending on who you get it like the beats up it's like kind of up Mm. somewhere and the, the beat happens like on an upward yeah. And do you have? Is there a bit of this kind of interpretation of what's going on? Yeah, it's something I I, I grapple with quite quite a bit, and and it really depends on the on the type of show that you're, or even the type of music that you're playing. And uh, so another extreme example being um, Phantom of the Opera. I, I I dep on that on one of the keyboard chairs. Yeah, and that because it's it's essentially it's pastiche classical music for the most part in 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 that show. So the style of conducting that goes on there is a much more sort of orchestral type um, approach, which, like you say, does have this um, kind of slightly more ambiguous, abstract uh, feel to it. And I guess I'm not an expert, but the idea is that you're sort of the way that you 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 show the beat in that kind of music is more that you're, you're kind of communicating the a feeling and the type of sound that you're you want the the players to make and it's it's less about sort of saying i want this note to happen at this point in time 
it's you're oh, more kind of just okay. sort of shaping a sound um and it's up to the musicians to sort of guide the kind tempo, of a little bit yeah i mean if you i guess if you talk to a, a you know a proper orchestral musician they'd have um much more insight into this but some conductors are like the great great um orchestral conductors are, are sort of infamous for being hard to follow in terms of where you put the beat but orchestral musicians might still love them because they feel you feel like they're communicating what how they want the music to feel and what the expression and the intent is in the music so something like phantom is kind of more in that, that world. world yeah whereas some of the other ones the more kind of groove based shows really yeah you, you MDing something like hamilton not, not that i've i don't work on hamilton but uh, take back to the future for example um it's it's kind of more like once if there's a especially if there's a click going it's more about kind of just directing traffic it's, it's kind of you're just saying right stop this and they you just kind of indicate you're in a vamp now literally just get an outstretched hand like a stop sign and then just sort of uh you give you a big gesture in the camera and say three four and that's the next bar coming up there and there you just you want have talking in your ears as well do you uh, well, you can hear the MD, and and some will occasionally, uh, well, yeah, occasionally you'll hear an MD who will sort of count within a song. That's not, I guess, that's not terribly common. You tend to do it mostly with a with a gesture, um, or you might have the click track programmed to, um, to to so you hear an automated three four uh, to tell you that you're exiting a vamp and moving on to the next section. Say so, so uh, yeah, there's a lot of different ways of MDing a show, but it's um at the end of the day just being being clear is what you is what i find most reassuring of course so we've, we've done a oh yeah absolutely especially if you're going in just sort of for, sort of to have to pick up the whole show that night you know and dep on it yeah. if you're not used to doing it um so we've done a big big old deep dive on your whole work in musical theater there but i think it's yeah. so interesting because we haven't had anyone on yet who kind of does a lot of that kind of work or mm-hmm. not at least that we've talked about anyway so it's it's so interesting for everyone to hear so let's get back to back to where we were so i mean let you you went to Guildhall and you did the whole jazz course there which i presume you found really interesting and met lots of musicians there and i, I presume you met a lot of the people that you work with now when you were when you were studying there i mean how did you find that whole experience yeah, well, it was it was fantastic. I did I did do the Guildhall course, but it was I was there as a postgrad, so I did my I did the master's course there. Yeah, um, and yeah, before that, I'd done a classical music degree, and it was a very different. Um, it was kind of an academic degree rather than a performing degree. Right. Um, so when I went to Guildhall, it was kind of a, it was a real gear shift, and uh, and so you know previously my head had been full of Stravinsky and and Beethoven and uh, you know all these kind of guys, and it was really while I was there doing that that undergrad degree that I realised I was more, getting more and more interested in jazz. So Guildhall was um, it was great when I wound up there, and yeah, you're right. A lot uh, I play with a lot of the people that I met there um, to this day, and I think one of the um, one of the real benefits of going to a music college in London is is to kind of have access to a network of of other musicians and pals. Uh, but also, I was I was really quite green about a lot of aspects of jazz when I got there, and I partic- particularly realised how weak I was rhythmically. Oh, really? That was okay. a it was a really underdeveloped um, side of my musicianship, and I think it's because when I was playing a lot of classical music uh, in my undergrad degree, and I was doing a lot of accompanying and um, accompanying operas and that kind of thing. 
playing with these conductors that we've just been talking about with a quite sort of wishy-washy beat. And it was, it, rubato is king in that world. And if you can speed up and slow down to follow a singer and be really flexible in your approach to tempo and time, that's kind of what gets you the gig. And then I kind of turned up at Guildhall and started playing with good drummers and having conversations like, oh, hey, what are you working on at the moment then? And the drum would say, well, I've been practicing 52 BPM. What have you been doing? And it was kind of a totally novel idea that you should be able to play in time. Right. Or, or that that was sort of quite an important thing to have yeah, in, your, in your armory. Yeah, yeah. And... So that there was kind of a, a bit of an eye-opening moment. I thought, oh, I I really suck at this. I can't. I'm always speeding up, or I'm dragging, or I'm. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was a that was a kind of the, a big wake-up call from being at Guildhall and playing with guys who were much more rhythmically astute than me. And I'm still kind of trying to catch up in that sense. Yeah, I mean, what what kind of things were you doing to get that? to get your time and feel better what what kind of apart from playing with drum really good drummers did you have anything that you practiced on piano that really helped well i i mean it's just the thing that all the stuff that you that most any self-respecting jazz teacher tells you you know just sit in a room with a metronome for a while and um you know put it on put the put the metronome on beats two and four and you know just get used to how that feels playing with a playing with a locked in groove and and you know it's the old the old game that people do the the thing you do where you reduce the frequency of the click so rather than beating twice a bar it beats once once a bar and then once every two bars and see if you, you know the things that you, that that most jazz musicians have, have practiced at some point just that i guess that kind of thing and and just i suppose also just trying to become more aware of it and just generally aware of of rhythm probably being the most important element in jazz as opposed to harmony, which I was already, I was already, already pretty good at harmony. I figured out a lot of nice chords and could play scrunchy music, but I couldn't really play music that had rhythmic vitality and felt good felt and exciting. Good. Yeah. 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 That's so that's, got together. Yeah. That's been a, a sort of work in progress. Oh man. That sounds good. Sounds cool. Um, so how did you get those first gigs after Guildhall? How did you, cause obviously you left Guildhall and then you're into the big, big wide world. <laughs> uh, how did that, what sort of things, what opportunities came out and how did you start sort of working as a professional musician? What was that transition like? Gosh, I, um, I sort of slightly struggled to remember, I guess, well, I guess when you come out of college and I'm sure you were the same, you, most people will just say yes to absolutely anything that, that comes your way. Yeah, of course. You know, yeah, we've all been uh, there, man. Yeah. And you, you can't be picky about the money. You can't be, it just feels, it, I remember it, enjoying feeling that badge of honor of having gigs in the diary no matter yeah. whether they were good gigs well-paid gigs you know just just being wanted by another musician somewhere yeah was was a good feeling well, and that still is a great feeling it's um just the idea that somebody wants you to turn up and play your instrument it's a credible privilege isn't it it is it is great so I, I guess i did you know restaurant gigs um I had a long, I just remembered a, a long-standing gig actually it went for, for ages. There was a, a bar quite near the Guildhall, near Farringdon Station. It, it's gone now, but it's called the Charter House. And uh, I had, it was a gig, I think it was a Tuesday night and I started it while I was at Guildhall. Uh, they had the budget for 
a singer, a drummer, and a keyboard player. And the the, the bar manager, he yeah, I can't remember how we started playing there, but he he started booking us every week. It was a residency that he he put on, and he kind of sort sorted tickets on um, some sort of discount ticket site thing. And, and we'd play, yeah, we'd play every 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 Tuesday night, and it, we'd kind of do a mixture of, of standards and then some more kind of groovy, you know, some Stevie Wonder tunes and um, a couple more kind of groove type things. And I suppose now I think about it, that's that's maybe where some of my left hand bass playing maybe started coming together and and i ended up doing playing hammond playing organ trio and that sort of thing um we probably did that gig for about five years oh wow from four four or five years i reckon every week it was every i didn't obviously i didn't do every single week i decked it out um but it i I think it was that kind of length of time yeah it was quite that so that was an early sort of thing i thought okay i've got a solid i've got a regular thing in the dark he didn't pay amazing money you know he, he paid the best he could but um, we we had some drinks and some food and and it was basically some beer money really, but it was it was quite good to to have somewhere regular to play. Um, yeah, and just I to guess be I'd... playing each week. I mean, you know, to actually have that and be out making music with other people, have to get a set together. That's really good, particularly when you're just in that kind of like transitionary kind of period yeah. into the you know beginning of kind of professional professional work. Yeah, that's right. And and I did a bit of a little bit of teaching early on. I I just had a a handful literally two or three private pupils i think for a little while but um and i i really i didn't i didn't enjoy teaching i realized they're all beginners um for what it's worth and i just remember feeling like i was putting these kids off music rather than i think they could tell that i didn't really want to be there and um i think they could sort of tell that I, i this that it was just a means to an end while i try and get more established um so, yeah, you know, you just it's like most people, you just take everything that comes your way for a while, and then, and then you just meet more people, and you meet more people, and they, and hopefully you just keep doing a, a decent job. Yeah, of course. And and then you kind of expand your your network. Hi, it's Adam here. I just want to quickly interrupt the podcast to ask you a very small favour. If you're getting lots of value from these conversations and want to stay up to date with all our latest episodes please do subscribe to The Keys Coach wherever you get your podcasts. This means that you can continue to hear these great conversations and you'll be notified each time a new episode comes out. And if you're feeling even more generous, please do consider leaving us a review. This helps others to discover the podcast and join this community. Thank you so much for your support. Hit that subscribe button. Let's get back to the conversation. I mean, you've you've gone on to do so many different things. I'm just looking. I know you said your your website is out of date a little bit, but you play with people like Jim Mullen, Des- Dennis Rollins, Derek Nash, Nigel Price. Um, you've worked a lot as like a sideman for a lot of a lot of different people. So, can you just explain for anyone who doesn't know what that is? What exactly is the role of someone like a sideman in a group? Because people often use that term, and I think it means different things to different people. Yeah. Uh, well, a uh, sideman uh, or oh, side woman. If- if you like, um, would be, I, I think it's just somebody who, who, who s- slots into a, a jazz. I don't know if people use the word in, outside of jazz. Do you know? Do you I don't know. I've it? never, I, so it's a word that people have always just used and I sort of wonder where it came from. Yeah. It's just sort of, yeah. it's a very jazz specific word, isn't it? I think. I think it probably is quite jazz specific, although I, I don't know, I'm willing to be corrected, but, um, yeah, you just essentially 
making up the numbers in a in a band it's essentially where you're you're playing with a group where you're not the leader yeah i think is all it kind of comes down to and and i suppose the requirements of a sideman are are being able to slot into the vibe of that band and and be able to kind of give the band leader what it is that their um you know what it is that their style of music or their approach requires and so having a bit of a flexible approach and a a knowledge of some different styles is is kind of a useful thing and that that kind of suits me and i've and i've been doing that sort of thing for quite a while yeah 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 i mean how do you find presumably when you're playing with so many different people which you are regularly how do you find learning that amount of music because presumably they're sending through like if you're going to do a gig that might be i don't know two sets or something of 45 minutes and it might be a really amazing jazz club and you want to make sure you know it all but that's quite a lot of music to get together for a for a for a gig so how, how do you how do you what's your process for learning that music um well it, it it kind of really depends on the on the type of music i guess if it was somebody's original um if i was slotting in as a depth say in somebody else's original music yeah um you know it's somebody else's original compositions uh if it's something more con- kind of contemporary and maybe there's some um some you know odd time signature stuff and some grooves that aren't particularly obvious and and so they kind of hit rhythmically tricky stuff that's the kind of stuff that uh that raises my eyebrows and and i'm kind of quite likely to sit down with it and try and get familiar with it and i suppose listen to their if they've made a record that listen to that album and get a feel for what the regular person does on the on the album um there's also sometimes the fact that i you, you often find that the chart that they send you it varies from player to player but sometimes you get sent these charts which aren't really a very accurate reflection of what they've played on the recording right they've tweaked and it in the studio <laughs> yeah exactly yeah and you find out well actually that chord has, seems to have morphed into that chord but the the chart hasn't ever been updated you know so i guess you, you have to sometimes do your homework and and um and then sometimes there's a bit of a you, you, there's a little bit of a sort of politics um, diplomacy gain to play where you're going to get to the rehearsal, get to the sound check and say, oh, so just, ch- I know you've said it's a, a DS there, but actually it's on the recording. I think you do a DC. So, j- you know, just double checking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you sort of want to take care of business, but without sort of looking like a know-it-all. Or say, <laughs> yeah. I, I think you're fine. That's yeah. a, a flat five chord on the recording there, not a dominant. And so it's... um. I've been there. Don't worry. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. sure you have. Yeah, so you, just, um, you just have to yeah navigate those things, don't you? Because there's always there's always those little things that are different to what's written or something that's on a recording, and of course, you have yeah. to work out what's a mistake and what, what's a yeah. what's a what's a what's actually it, what actually it's supposed to be. Have you ever thought about starting up your own project? Well, uh, yeah, it's it's a conversation I have quite quite regularly uh, when people ask me about what I'm up to and. Uh, and I have occasionally fielded a band that is called the Liam Dunneke Quartet or Trio. Yeah. And I did a few Ronnie's late shows back before COVID when they were, um, when they were more regular jazz nights, you know, on the Monday, Tuesday and Wednesdays. Um, I, yeah. I, so I have done things under my own name and I've written uh, music over the years uh, for my own band. Some, some of it with a, a frontline instrument, some of it not. Um, but I've never really, I haven't yet kind of really found a particular um, urge to put my own music out into the world particularly. And I think part of it is that the things I write, 
the the original the original music I write, um, I feel is a good vehicle for me as a composer. But I don't always feel like I do my best improvising in those situations. I'd almost feel like I'm I'm a better improviser when I'm given somebody else's music. Oh, okay. And I think part of that is a, is a bit of a weakness in terms of my composition skills because I maybe overwrite a little bit. I kind of put too much information on the page. Okay. I kind of write over over complicated chord progressions that that you know where there's only really one possible voicing that sounds satisfying <laughs> and it relies on certain voice leading yeah, to sound yeah, yeah. to sound good and then you I try and improvise over it and it's really hard and I don't enjoy it particularly and and I I do I know that the the way forward is to try and write pieces that are much more simple and leave more space and leave more um leave more to the improviser to to kind of be spontaneous with because that's what I like to see when I'm playing somebody else's music of course but it's it's quite hard to sort of set aside that composing instinct that i had from when i actually studied composition and you want to be in charge of every single sound every moment of every beat i feel like i want to have control over it right interesting Uh, and i find it hard to let go of that when i'm being a jazz composer yeah 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 because i guess yeah i mean i suppose I suppose if you just saw like D minor seven written and you were playing on someone else's project, you could interpret what that meant and you can turn it into all these other little chords and little corners and make it what it was. But I suppose, I suppose it's much harder to be free in that way when it's really, really prescriptive and you, you have to play those exact chords the way it is. I, it's a, it's a really difficult one that, isn't it? And I guess, yeah, yeah, maybe it does come from your, the sort of classical music you played, um, where it, 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 you know, like you say, I've, I've never quite thought of it like that, but I suppose the whole classical composition thing is, you're in control of every single, <laughs> every single beat on every single. No, yeah, man, that's that's um, that's really interesting. Uh, I think we should talk. A, I think we should talk a little bit about Hammond as well because mm. that's. Um, yeah, we love the Hammond. Um, yeah, and I know this has been a big part of 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 your kind of like musical musical life. And I was just watching a video on your website again, which I know I know you said wasn't updated, but it was very <laughs> cool. It was a uh, my romance, um, and it looked like something you'd maybe done in lockdown. Oh yeah, was that uh, with Dave O'Higgins? Yeah, and, um, it was wicked. Yeah. It's so so good, and I was like watching because I'm I've I've never really got into Hammond. I've only played a few. I'm not like I would never in a million years describe myself as a Hammond player. I I, I want to get those skills together, but I, it's it's not it's not something I've ever really done. So I guess the first question is how did you immediately how how did you kind of transition from piano to the Hammond organ because it is a completely different thing. It is a. It's definitely a different instrument. That's for sure. Um, it's a good question. I, I didn't really know that the ham, the Hammond organ, jazz organ was was really a thing uh, until I was at Guildhall, and there was somebody in my year who um, wanted me to play in their end of year recital or their final or something like that, and they wanted to do uh, an organ project. Uh, I I can't remember that they were. It was a drummer, and I can't remember whether he was wanted to play. I don't think it was a particular record or anything, but he was he was really into organ stuff at like that, and it was a kind of a new thing to me. Yeah. Um, uh, in fact, I'll, I'll just tell you his name. He's a guy called Ra Strangets, who's a lovely chap, Italian guy who was um, he's been over here for some time, um, and he uh, he was on the on the course in the same year as me. He's he wanted to do something for his final, and then after that. Um, yeah, so when we when we we finished Guildhall, um, this this 
this guy Ra, he he managed to hustle a, a residency in a, a, a restaurant, uh, an Italian restaurant in Fulham, and they only really had the budget for uh, for two or three musicians, and he always had a special guest. So he said, "Oh, Liam, you could come and play organ. You, you can be kind of the organ guy because you haven't got a budget for a bass player." Uh, and I had just had this uh, single decker Nord Electro, uh, which I've still got, and it's got a kind of passable Hammond sound on it. It's not That's a bad what Hammond I've sound. literally got in front of me. <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. The yeah, Nord Electro the... 3 has been like the absolute workhorse of my entire life. It was the best investment I've probably ever made. It's just I would say forever. exactly the same. Yeah, same. It's It's got train it's tickets dropped. and coins inside it <laughs> and all sorts. Like, yeah. Um, yeah, it's... So that, yeah, just with the, the trusty old Nord Electro with its little LED drawbars, um, that was my sort of first go at playing or, at playing organ. But you're obviously limited in what you can do with with the single decker uh, keyboard. You you really need the two two separate keyboards. So I think once I started playing with Ra and uh, I, I first met Nigel Nigel Price, who's a great jazz guitarist, um, doing that, and we had a chat, and he he was giving me some feedback because he plays a lot of organ organ trio music and he was saying yeah yeah okay yeah you, you um it sounds like you, you you're going down the right track but uh, you know you might want to try listening to these guys and have a look at this and you if you want to take the organ seriously you need to get another instrument that's can that is closer to a real closer to a real hammond so then i started investigating it more and eventually bought um the the nord c2d um which is their kind of well, they don't make it anymore but it's a it's what we, they call a clone wheel as opposed to a tone wheel organ uh and it's a yeah a digital um more portable copy of a hammond um but it if you put it through a reasonable pa it sounds it sounds pretty it sounds pretty good in does my it have opinion. the pedals it does i've got the pedals just there uh, okay everyone can't see yeah. that but liam just showed me the pedals <laughs> yeah no, it do, does have a pedal unit um that plugs in via midi nice and and it's so i kind of got yeah I've, I've got that and then people started calling me because i think the hammond organ format is quite popular just from a, an economic angle for a lot of people because it yeah. just means you get a, a harmony instrument and a bass player uh for the price of one musician and so i got i managed to pick up more and more gigs doing that kind of thing and there's also very few what well, compared with piano players there are very few organ organists around london um, there are some some great players, but there's really not that many to go around. So I started getting calls from more experienced organ players, guys like uh, Ross Stanley and Mike Gorman, um, people like that, saying, "Hey, can you cover this gig? Can you cover that gig?" So some of the yeah, I've, I've some of the people I've played with have been initially as a depth for those. Well, and still do depth for those guys, um, as well as picking up my own uh, gigs. But so yeah, it was a gradual process over several years. How did you get the the whole playing the pedals together? Because that just to me is like I I've I've tried, <laughs> and I'm just like oh my god, this is such an incredible amount of work. It's like it's basically playing piano with your feet, which is <laughs> it's like in the most simplest level is like insane. I, you know, I was watching your feet like going all about the place on that recording. I was just like, man, that is like serious coordination. Ah, uh, well, so uh, I'll, well, so t- two 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 aspects to to that. Firstly, I did actually learn when, when I was at school. I did learn church organ. I learned pipe organ. Oh, okay, a, right. So you sort a of had a head years. start with it, I guess. Yeah, I took lessons with the, with the cathedral organist in Hereford, um, who's a phenomenal organ organist, and um, 
I had, yeah, I took, while I was at sixth form, I had two lessons, two years worth of, of organ lessons there. Uh, where yes, you you kind of learn the the, the pedal technique, um, and it, it, yeah, it's 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 tough. It's really quite quite a hard thing to get together, and it didn't feel natural at all for for quite a while. Um, so, and I, I, as things stand, I'm I'm not a I'm not an amazing church organist. I'm a, I can I can get by, um, and I can play church services with some hymns and some some more simple music and improvise a lot but i'm not an amazing you wouldn't get me doing a recital at saint paul's anytime soon <laughs> okay, um, cool. but i can kind of just nice I, can, I can get by um as a pipe organist but the follow-up from thing from that is a lot of people misunderstand the role of the pedals in a hammond organ situation because i hate to break it to you but i'm not it's not as straightforward as simply playing the bass line just with your feet um, okay. that's not really what's going on. Right. And I get a lot of people come up to me at the end of the gigs and, and, and I sort of have a chat with them. And, um, so to put it, um, looks like you are they. Well, it, so, uh, yeah, the, the reason it looks like, well, I, it, I sort of half am half aren't the Jimmy Smith, who was, as, as you know, was like the, yeah, the kind of godfather of, of Hammond, like jazz Hammond organ, really. Um, yeah, he cool. really kind of pioneered it as a jazz instrument and kind of lay down a lot of the standard techniques that, that Hammond players have used ever since. Um, and he pioneered what they call the, what he called the kind of tapping technique. And if you watch Jimmy Smith, there aren't too many videos of it, but if you watch what he does, he, he's, his technique was just to literally tap a single note on the bass pedals. Uh, usually he'd go for either a, a B flat or an A or an A flat kind of two thirds of the way down the pedal board. Um, and if, if you're playing a walking, you'd be playing a walking bass with your left hand. It depends on the tempo of the tune a little bit. Let's say it's a medium sort of swinging tune. You'd be walking the bass with your left hand, but he would just tap that single note very briefly, just very lightly, not really digging in, just, just lightly tapping it. And it gives you this low frequency, extra little sort of thud a little extra push just kind of like a percussive like a bass drum kind of like uh yeah like, like feathering, feathering a bass, bass drum. drum yeah 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 it's exactly that it's the equivalent of that and he realized that by doing that you can just give the you give a little bit more front to the to the note to the pitch that you're playing with your left hand uh, and okay. that became kind of the standard way that people use the pedals with with wow. with walking is walking with the left hand and there's been a few sort of variations of that. Some people, some people do and have um, gone to the pain of of being able to walk walk the whole baseline with your with your feet. But in my opinion, it doesn't sound that great, and it, you can get a very sort of thick, muddy sound that isn't actually particularly desirable, even if it were easy to do. Must be an, um, so, an incredible workout, though. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you wouldn't you wouldn't need to go to the gym, that's yeah. for sure. But but the, the the thing I kind of like to do, and which you see guys like Joey DeFrancesco do quite a bit, is I tend to um, I tend to walk the bass with with the left hand, like like all those guys do, and and sort of trace what I'm doing with the left foot as well. And I, wow. so I'm more or less copying, I'm more or less playing the same note that my left hand's playing, um, but on but mirroring it on the feet. But as I said, like Jimmy Smith is doing, just lightly touching it. Yeah, and it just gives you a, a sort of little low frequency. Buh, 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 buh. Oh man, that's so the... interesting. Okay, and then occasionally, just you would you, again. This is a something you hear Joey do 
uh, quite a lot, and it's very satisfying when it happens. Is you you'll you'll dig in on some on certain notes on the bass pedals. It's the equivalent of uh, of doing a sort of ding a dong ding dong ding on on a, and you suddenly get that extra bit of resonance. Yeah. So sometimes I'll sort of dig in on the low note and actually play it properly and get the full length. Set, play a couple of notes like that, Got and it. it just gives you an extra little. Uh, yeah, a little kind of propel along. So does that mean then if you're walking with your left hand and kind of tapping with your uh like your feet and doing that doing the Jimmy Smith technique, does that mean when you're soloing then you you can't walk solo and have chords? So it basically goes down to single line and walking at that point. That's yeah, essentially that is that is the case. Yeah, which is why I guess the organ trio with, with in, including a guitar is is such a popular yeah, format the harmonies because covered, then, yeah you've still got some harmony. The, the other way is to kind of comp for yourself. So if I'm playing with a, a trio with, and there's a horn player, so there's no other harmony instrument, um, it's actually quite a good way of making yourself leave space in your lines. So you play a line, and then maybe drop the hand down to the lower manual, which is typically where you do your comping. Yeah. And just kind of put a couple of comping stabs in there. And that almost kind of forces you to break up your your line so you're kind of accompanying yourself wow uh, okay. in a way having a little cop, cop, kind of call and answer yeah thing so it's it's kind of not the end of the world not having that other that other kind of like that that, that kind of area where you can add the harmony i see what you mean yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That's so sometimes cool. it's quite nice to thin it out as well so there are just kind of two two melodic lines of going course, on yeah it, to make a change how did you learn how to use the draw bars because I think I, whenever I am recording something or I want to add some hammer to something I'm making, I'm literally just like playing away. I'm just like literally pressing all the buttons, seeing what happens. Not entirely <laughs> sure. Not entirely sure what I'm doing. And I remember I was doing a project last year for something. I can't remember what it was. And there was an organ sound on it that I had to recreate for this. I think it was for this track we were doing. I can't remember what it was. But I texted you it and you were like, oh, I think that's a... You, you knew the exact like preset oh. and you were like, it was a Fafisa, for, what is it? A Fafisa? Fafisa, yeah. Fafisa organ. And I was like, man, that is some skill to know exactly how. To, and you gave me how I could also recreate that Fafisa organ sound on a Hammond. And I was just like, that is like, that's like sound programming, but on a kind of on a completely different level. Because you've got- On a sort all, of analog yeah, level. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, so how I did you learn all of that? Well, I, when I'm, it's still very much work in progress, and there are people who know way more about it than, than me, really, in terms of the sonic right. um, capabilities of the Hammond. I mean, the Farfisa is actually that's a different instrument. To be fair, it's a different type of electronic organ. Yeah, it sounds um, like the old like sonic kind of thing, isn't it? It's like a, it's like a you know sonic you know yeah. the, the kind of yes, yeah, so the, 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 the kind of Sega Mega Drive <laughs> yeah, thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean that's that's the uh, the sound you get. I think is it that or a Vox organ that you get the um i'm a believer you know the famous organ riff at the start da, 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 da. that's um quite a sort of uh popular sound but yeah that that wasn't as, as to my to the best of my knowledge that wasn't recorded on a hammond that was on a farfisa organ but there is actually um, yeah. a farfisa organ preset on the nord electro as well i don't know if you oh, that? Well, that probably is. yeah yeah right. yeah and i was yeah, like because that's how i uh, that's how i when you said it was that i was like oh my god i've got one in my on my right yeah. right right yeah well yeah i mean, I, I guess I've, I've kind of got because I'm, I'm also lucky enough to have a, a real. I've got a proper Hammond, uh, a an early '60s Hammond oh, wow. C3 and Leslie. Um, although I don't get to gig it very often because it lives in a church, okay. Uh, and I don't have the van, let alone um, sort of hired muscle to to help me move it everywhere. So that's. But um, I guess that's 
that's where I kind of turn to for when I'm trying to sort of grasp more about how to about the sound that Hammond can make because there's nothing like the real thing really. No. Um, but I suppose I mean just it's a very boring answer, but I I had some lessons or oh, a couple of lessons early on f- um, with Ross Stanley. I don't know he'd be a good chat chat to uh, have a chat to one day because he's one of the most phenomenal and versatile keyboard players in, in the country. I think, um, and he's. Uh, he's an a, a, an exceptional organ player, um, who's yeah. I think most people would say he's he's one of the best guys in Europe, really, for for playing jazz Hammond. So he, he very kindly gave me a couple of lessons fairly early on when I was getting into it. And um, there there are certain staple sounds that you that again, well, it's kind of like the Jimmy Smith sort of um, set up. Like you typically have your lower manual set up at eight four eight, so i.e. the the lowest draw bar, which is producing the the octave below the the note you play, yeah, you'd have that all the way out to eight, so that the sort of full volume, if you like. Then the next one, which is the harmonic, uh, a fifth, um, uh, uh, that you're getting that uh, you'd have that at, f- at four, so you're kind of getting a little bit of that sound, or maybe three, uh, and then the the third draw bar along, which is the concert pitch, essentially, um, you'd have that out at full as well. And that's a kind of pretty standard um, combination for walking a bass line right. uh, at the Low bottom end, of the keyboard yeah. and then comping in the middle and higher end. Um, and I also kind of got these things from, it, again, it's not very uh, it's not very romantic, but just um, paying for some instructional videos by Larry Goldings. And because right, uh, okay. you can buy these sort of um, masterclass videos you know, and they'll say, "Hey guys, so you know, this is how I set my organ up." This kind of thing, because it, it's you don't see that many in the flesh where you can just go up and say, "Hey, what are you doing there?" So you, just a bit of that, and talking to people, uh, read a couple of books, just some YouTube. You know, it's all pretty. You just um, kind of learnt it, yeah, as you as you kind of went along. It seems very yeah. complex because you got like all the um, you got like all the different vibrato modes as well, and like the chorus sounds and then you've got whether you have a click on the sound of the key and all this kind of thing as well is that right yeah the click? well the click so this is again where you can get you can get a little bit muddied by what the digital keyboards do and what the the actual organ does because right. you can't you can yeah on a on a on a nord um uh you know the nord uh digital organ you can yeah you can kind of customize every aspect of the sound down to how much key key click you hear but in when it comes to playing a, a real Hammond, to my knowledge, you've got no control over that. That's, That's just, just a, yeah, okay, right. It's just what it's, yeah, it's just what, what that machine happens to do, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, there are other things that are that that every Hammond will do. So you can you can have a vibrato effect or a chorus effect, um, and and then you've got the choice of whether you want, you've got your Leslie speaker spinning fast, giving you that kind of high octane. Um, big sound or or slowly kind of what we call the corral mode or or even not moving at all which is quite a popular setting with larry goldings you just kind of it's a static kind of sound um so that and that's part of what i've been trying to sort of get together with the hammond is is really getting adept at, at having full control over those different sounds so that you can kind of go through different gears in the course of a tune and even like build a solo so you maybe start off without just with the static sound and maybe introduce the vibrato um effect and then maybe when you really kind of 
reaching a climax you've you've t- put the leslie on fast yeah, yeah you might yeah. play a little shout chorus thing or something like that with the fast um and just kind of getting used to having that at your fingertips is is a big part of getting the hammond together yeah i guess I'm the hammond is like yeah absolutely i guess a hammond is like halfway between a kind of piano and playing like synths isn't it because you're kind of able to manipulate the sound i mean that's something that i kind of think is <laughs> it's something I often think about the piano. You can't change the sound of... I mean, people say you can change the sound of a piano, but like broadly... Not to the same degree. Yeah, not anywhere near to the, the same degree that you can. Yeah. I think that's that's a really exciting thing. I mean, that's something I experienced when I started playing like more synthy kind of parts, just right. messing about with sound and thinking, oh, wow, this yeah. is so cool that I can actually change um, that's right. the yeah. sound yeah. I'm playing. Yeah. No, and I think, right. You know, and I, I think that's I think that's, that's certainly something I want to get better at. Um yeah I'm, yeah, I'm well up for learning. I'm well up for learning the Hammond organ. I think that's one of my my goals. I'm gonna I'm gonna try and set myself. Do you play Rhodes as well? Uh, I do play some Rhodes. In fact, I've got a yes, I've got a Rhodes in the corner there. But it's um and actually, funnily enough, I got I acquired the Rhodes um when I bought my Hammond. I I got my Hammond on eBay um a few years ago. Well, quite a, maybe seven or eight years ago. And uh, the guy uh, I bought it from was getting rid of uh, a whole load of gear. His, his dad had just passed away, and I think his dad was a keyboard player, and he just needed to get rid of all this stuff out of his dad's flat. And his dad, his dad's flat was just a, a keyboard treasure trove. There's just tons of stuff there um, sitting in his place. And so I went there for the Hammond, went up there with a van and picked up the Hammond. And and then this guy who's not a musician just said, oh, uh, I don't know I don't know what this kind of box is. Is that, is that useful? Is that any good? And it was... Um, a mark to uh bender no roads no yeah um a stage stage roads uh and so we got got out of the box and and gave it a little tinker and um to my shame i haven't had it fixed up yet it, it it's it potentially a, a good instrument i think i'm not an expert on roads yeah. but it needs some work doing it's not gig worthy yet it needs some tines replacing and the action doing some work on but he this guy who said just take it for free we just i just need it need rid of it but I insisted on giving him a few hundred quid just so I could sleep at night. Because yeah. I, um, so, yeah, but, worth a lot, aren't they? Yeah. So I've got one sitting in here in my in uh, in my music room, but I just haven't got around to getting it sorted out. So that's a good prompt that I should prompt I should get on that. Oh yeah. man, sounds good. Um, so I guess I guess sort of to wrap up, what um what's kind of next for you? I, I, something I always ask everyone that comes on, it's like, what is is there something you haven't done yet? you're kind of thinking just oh my god i'd love to do that or maybe there's a gig or someone you have you know, some music you want to write or what's kind of next what's what's on the horizon it's a good question um i, I mean i do still think about recording something under my own name yeah i i, I th- i'm i kind of i do believe it would be a good thing to do just as a um as a as a goal uh and just, I, I kind of do buy the idea that it's just good to have a document of what what I'm doing. But the, the trouble is then I think, well, I'm doing a lot of different stuff and I, I kind of don't know what the Liam Dunneke trio record would be would yeah. sound like. Yeah, sometimes I feel like it would be really maybe like a swinging straight ahead um, Oscar Peterson-y type thing because I love playing that kind of music. But I also like playing more kind of, I love John Taylor and Keith Jarrett. Yeah. I don't know if it sounds more like that or... Um, it's hard to know what out. your own music is sometimes, isn't it? Especially when, because yeah. I do a lot of the sort of similar things to you in the in in the way that I play a lot of other people's music, um, yeah. and um, 
and haven't really put yet, <laughs> yet, I, I always use that word yet, you know, I haven't yet put something out that's kind of like my music. And I, I, it, it can be quite a, a, a big thing to kind of work out actually what is your own music. And I, I don't even know where you'd kind of start to work yeah. that out really. It's a, it's a really tough one. I haven't got an answer to it yet. I just, um, but a few friends of mine do kind of keep on my case and say, you need to record something, you need to record something. And um, maybe, you know, maybe I'll just do do one day of standards, another day of more contemporary stuff, another day of Plen Hammond. I don't know, maybe just kind of just splurge a whole lot of things and see what feels good. But um, in the meantime, I've got a... Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I've got a load of dates coming up with Tony Blackburn, the the um, the, the veteran BBC DJ who uh, some people might know. Who's uh, he has this touring show called Sounds of the Sixties Live, uh, where that's right, it's 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 his Radio Two show, and um, he's got a stage uh, equivalent where we go around the country. Tony tells a lot of great stories about the sixties and the records he was playing. And there's a live band behind him. And then we play a kind of medley of all those great 60s tunes. And uh, we were on a tour earlier this year, which was interrupted because uh, Tony was uh, was ill. So we, we've got to break off that tour. But we're starting again in a couple of weeks with some more dates around the country. So uh, playing a whole lot of 60s tunes. That's coming up in uh, in September and October. Nice. Are um, you doing piano on that? What kind of, is that uh, like a, what kind of, is it the keys part? Yes. It's, yeah, it's the keys. I have my call Kronos for that gig um which is as you probably know it's got a, it's an amazing workstation i can use a fraction of what its full capability really but um yeah i've loaded up a bunch of patches a lot of piano but also lots of some some strings and some you know di um divided keyboard thing with a, with a string patch and then also have the i usually have the nord electro set up with a for some hammond stuff next next to it as well there're two um, two keys players on that no, just just me. Okay, just just it. yeah. It's it's keys, guitar, bass, drums, two horns, and two singers. Uh, so that's that's kind of keeping the diary full for the for the next couple of months, along with all the other bits and pieces and a couple of albums and some more West End things. And oh, amazing um, man! Yeah, sounds it sounds like you're um. Well, that, that's I kind of go back to what I said right at the beginning of when we were chatting, is that you're just so unbelievably versatile, whatever it is you're doing. And it's it's interesting that you describe yourself as a jazz musician, because I know that's a huge part of what you do. But when you actually look at all these other things, it's kind of, it's not necessarily jazz, it's all these different things. That's, a, that's such a nice way to end, because I think that that does... Um, really shine through your love for this music. So yeah, Liam, thanks so much for coming on. I'm going to put ep uh, links to all of those things you mentioned in the uh, episode description. So yeah, thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for uh, having me. It's been a pleasure. Massive thanks to Liam for coming on the podcast. It was so great hearing about everything he's up to. Do go and check out those links in the description, particularly the Sound of the 60s tour, which is coming up soon. Thank you so much for listening. We have lots of other awesome guests coming up for you. So do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and I will see you in the next episode.